For four years now, the media has been abuzz with stories about the threat to our nation from Russia. Unfortunately, this preoccupation has allowed the greatest enemy we actually have to go unnoticed. Tonight, in this special edition of Hold the Line, we explore America's greatest national security threat, China. Welcome to Hold the Line, I'm Buck Sexton. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, America has stood as the world's sole superpower. For the most part, this has been a good thing, with the U.S. acting as a stabilizing force in world affairs. However, over the past several decades, one nation more than any other has risen to challenge America's status, China. That's right, a country with 1.4 billion souls living within its borders and an economy, that, an economy that's second in size only to ours, China sees itself as ascendant because it is. And that ascent is driven in large part by the ambition of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, the nation's sole ruling entity. It is an authoritarian regime. That ascent has also set China on a course for direct conflict with the United States. It's impossible to understand China without first understanding China's history. How did we get here? What brought us to this place where just now it seems we wake from our national somnambulance about the threat economically, militarily, culturally from Chinese dominance? What took us so long to get to this point? Well, if you understand the backstory, it all becomes more clear. In addition to being the world's most populous nation, China is the world's oldest nation, the earliest known records dating back over 3,000 years. But its most recent incarnation began in the early 20th century. After a long and bloody civil war, communist leader Mao Zedong proclaimed the establishment of the People's Republic of China. During his decades of communist leadership, Chairman Mao ruled over the Chinese people with an iron fist. Much of his tenure as China's leader was marked by purges, famines, and massively failed economic reforms. Scholars continue to debate the scale of the slaughter and death under Mao, but estimates suggest the communist dictator was responsible for at least 40 million deaths, largely from the famine and the Great Leap Forward, perhaps as many as 80 million. Despite the mountains of dead bodies Mao left in his wake, it was a move that he made in 1972 that would define the relationship between China and the United States in subsequent decades. That year, the chairman met personally with United States President Richard Nixon. The meeting led to a diplomatic and economic warming between the U.S. and China. And in the subsequent decades, and with reforms implemented by Mao's successors, China saw an economic explosion, almost an economic miracle. Since the 1970s, the nation's GDP has increased by nearly 10,000% and now appears poised to overtake that of the United States within the next decade or so. China's economic rise has been a blessing and a curse. While the entwining of our two economies has, has lifted hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty, a very worthy thing, and led to an increased quality of life for both nations, at least economically speaking, the growth has also fueled the ambition of the Chinese Communist Party's leaders. Today, China finds itself under the leadership of General Secretary Xi Jinping, arguably the most powerful leader since Mao himself. Under Xi's leadership, China's defense spending has increased dramatically, as has its aggressive posture toward neighboring nations. Perhaps more importantly, Xi's China has engaged in a multifaceted campaign to undermine the United States economically and politically. On the economic front, China engages in widespread intellectual property theft, an effort led by its counterintelligence agencies. 
According to some estimates, or just its intelligence agencies, according to some estimates, China IP theft cost the United States between $225 and $600 billion every single year. It's stunning, isn't it? This is a civilization-changing transfer of knowledge. This is a shift in the power balance between the two most influential nation-states in the world, and it's happening right under our noses, and until recently we seem largely unaware, or perhaps we just didn't care. The elites in this country have all kinds of reasons why they don't pay more attention to China. They benefit from access to those markets. We're told, don't worry about it. Offshoring of jobs, intellectual property theft, massive espionage rings, not a problem, as long as you can buy cheap stuff at Walmart. That's, that's the economic and social theory that we've been fed for years now. And China's influence can also be felt on our political front. While the media placed great efforts on Russian disinformation to meddle in the 2020 election, there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that China sought to inject itself into America's democratic process. We're still expecting a report at some point to be briefed to Congress, and there may be a declassified executive summary of it looking into possible Chinese influence operations for the 2020 election. And who do you think, if you had to pick, who do you think the Chinese Communist Party wanted to win this last election? How many times did we hear in 2016, oh, Putin wanted Trump. They exaggerated, they lied, they spied. You think you'll hear anything from our oh-so-intrepid journos about how Xi Jinping would much rather have a compliant Joe Biden and perhaps a well-compensated Hunter Biden to work against in the years ahead? We've learned in recent weeks that China has engaged in extensive efforts to spy on and influence U.S. politicians stretching back for years. Yes, that's right. Hunter Biden, Eric Swalwell targeting people for not just the possibility of developing a relationship where they could actually, there you see Eric Swalwell on the screen, they could actually get access to classified, but even just steering our policy choices, even just determining what kind of attitudes our leadership class will have toward the CCP. We should be speaking with one voice as a country about the need to stand up to the trade and intellectual property theft and other transgressions constantly going on at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, its various military and intelligence branches, the sabotage, the cyber theft, all the things that they're constantly doing day in and day out. Shouldn't we all be unified in that? No, instead what we have is China will become wealthier and it will liberalize and oh, it makes you richer too. So be quiet, America. That's what the elites told you. And now we're waking up to the reality. We have a very serious challenge, not just for our own purposes, but to America as the single greatest beacon of freedom in the world. As the global hegemon, China wants to supplant us. All right, we've put together a great lineup of guests to explain the threat that China poses to the United States. Coming up, we'll speak to Gordon Chang about the latest menace that China has unleashed on the world. All the lies about COVID-19. Stay with us.
Welcome back. On January 9th, 2020, the World Health Organization announced a mysterious pneumonia-like virus in Wuhan, China. Flash forward almost a year later, and that virus turned into a pandemic confirmed to be responsible for over 60, 76 million infections around the world and more than 1.6 million deaths, including nearly 311,000 Americans. We know that the Chinese Communist Party lied about COVID-19 from the start and underreported uh, under the size of the initial outbreak. It hid how contagious the disease really was, even denying it could be transmitted by human-to-human -human contact. And the regime even allowed international travel to continue, knowing it was likely exporting a global outbreak. So how do we let China get away with this? And what's going to happen next? Joining me now to discuss this and more is the author of the great U.S.-China tech war, Gordon Chang. You can follow him on Twitter, at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, thanks so much. Thank you, Buck. Gordon, let's start with this. What Now that we have more data, more of the history and the facts established, what happened in January of 2020 with China and COVID-19? Take us, give us, give us the timeline, a, a, an abbreviated version from then to present. On January 20, um, the Chinese regime announced that COVID-19 was contagious, human-to-human -human transmissible. But they knew in Beijing, probably no later than the second week of December, um, that this was highly transmissible. And if they had said nothing during that five weeks, that would have been grossly irresponsible. But what they did was they tried to tell the world, as you said, that this was not contagious. And they did that through the World Health Organization. Now, at the same time, Xi Jinping was pressing countries not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines on arrivals from China while he was locking down Wuhan and surrounding cities. So by locking those cities down, he thought that he was stopping the spread of disease. So by pressuring countries to take arrivals from China, he knew that he was spreading it. And there's one more thing that you referred to, and that is on January 21, the day after admitting transmissibility, China then tried to tell the world that this was going to be no more serious than SARS, the 2002-2003 epidemic that infected about 8,400 people worldwide, killed about 810. But by January 21st, they knew this was far more fatal and far more contagious than SARS. Why do you assess the Chinese Communist Party and, uh, and Xi Jinping specifically would lie about this to the world, Gordon? Wouldn't they know that that would damage their credibility and cause problems for them down the line? What was, what was their calculation as you see it? Well, we don't know what was in Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping's mind. But if after having seen what the coronavirus did to cripple China, if he wanted to get even, if he wanted to spread this, he would have done exactly what he did. Um, so we have to assume that this was malicious. Um, you know, we won't really know um, that issue for uh, for sure. But clearly, there's only one interpretation that fits the facts as we know them, and that is China deliberately spread this, and that this was indeed the first time that one nation has attacked all the others, because this disease has gone into about 210 countries and territories, and there's only maybe about one or two countries that have not had an infection. So, for instance, Palau in the Pacific. But clearly, this has become a global pandemic because of the decisions that China took. Gordon, now the U.S. has options at its disposal to respond to this. What do you think going forward would be the appropriate way to try to 
have some accountability for this. It, it feels like that's that's almost an impossibility at this point, but there should be action taken. What would you like to see an incoming administration do to try to hold China accountable, assuming that there is a willingness to do it, which I think is a big assumption? Yeah. I don't know what the Biden team would do, but I doubt that they would take measures to impose costs on China. And we need to impose the severest of costs buck. And the reason is that this is not the last pathogen that will come from Chinese soil. And we cannot allow Chinese leaders to think that they can do this again. So there's got to be some element of deterrence. What people in Washington have been talking about is confiscating, for instance, China's holdings of treasuries. Now, I don't think that we should do this by ourselves because China would then try to say that we were reneging on our debt. I think we should be working with other countries so that everyone confiscates Chinese assets so that China then can't pick on any one country. Because if we have a unified response, it's clear um, that China is the party at fault. They can't say, oh, this is just uh, Beijing versus Washington. And how is China doing with the virus as we as we get here to the very end of 2020 going into 2021? It seems like what we see based in the official media is that China is not being hit nearly as hard as America, Europe and, and other country, other countries, other regions of the world are. So what's going on there, Gordon? Well, at this point, China does have outbreaks and they pop up all over the country. Um, but the outbreaks probably are not as large as uh, they were, let's say, five, six months ago. What's occurred is we, we know that uh, China takes stern measures whenever these happen. So they have fewer infections than we do. But we've got to remember one point, and that is China's now, its priority is controlling the narrative. It's more important than actually controlling the disease. And we know this because the Communist Party on January 26 actually appointed the, and announced their task force on the coronavirus. And this had a nine-member roster, and they only had one public health official on that task force. The rest were party hacks, and there were a lot of propaganda workers, as they're called in China. So clearly, you know, they, they were trying to make sure that they could propagate a particular storyline. So when the news from China, as it is now, is consistent with uh, China's propaganda directives, We've got to be very suspicious of what we hear. So this disease has not left China, and they're still having um, problems there. And I think that long term, we're going to probably be better off because we have a vaccine that works and they don't. Gordon, I also want to know what you think the, the most accurate assessment, understanding that this is with imperfect information thus far, uh, but what is, uh, based on the reporting we've seen, your analysis of the of the origins of the COVID nineteen pandemic. You know, we heard it was the we heard it was the wet market and pangolins, and that it might have been the Wuhan Institute of Virology. What is what is your best uh, analysis right now of where you think it came from? Well, I think that this was an engineered bug that accidentally escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has China's only uh, P4 biosafety lab. That's the highest level of biosafety. But we don't know. Um, it's perfectly possible that this could have been naturally occurring. Um, but what is really suspicious, Buck, is that most diseases that come from China 
come from the southern portion of the country, either Yunnan or Guangdong province. Wuhan is in the central part of the country. And this outbreak, uh, which was originally traced to the seafood market in the center of Wuhan, was about 20 miles away from the Wuhan Institute and that P4 lab. That's highly suspicious. Now, there's a lot of science on both sides. Um, and this is going to be a debate among um, epidemiologists and virologists for years. Um, but right now, um, there's a lot of good science which says, look, you know, this could not have been um, naturally occurring. Gordon, Ultimately, we've got, we'll find out. We've got more for you. So if you would stay right there with us, we'll come right back. Over the past decade, China has increased its effort to influence America's internal affairs through both economic and diplomatic pressure. We'll discuss that in depth when we come back. <laughs> Beijing's dangerous behavior doesn't stop at the coronavirus pandemic. Just this month, we learned of Chinese spies trying to infiltrate U.S. lawmakers and politicians, as well as a host of American universities and businesses, which we'll get to later in the show. And now there are reports that Disney CEO Bob Iger is interested in serving as America's ambassador to China. So how will Beijing use this opportunity to further influence and manipulate the U.S.? Let's bring Gordon Chang back in. He is the author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War. Follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, Bob Iger as U.S. ambassador to China. Why should we find this troubling? We should find it troubling because of Beijing's reaction to Iger as ambassador. Look, Bob Iger is one of the most capable individuals on earth. But he, of course, is part of a Hollywood elite that has been craven to Beijing, and especially Disney, uh, during his tenure as chief executive. So um, Beijing would view the appointment of Iger as a signal from the Biden administration that Biden wanted to cooperate, and he felt that the U.S. was absolutely in a position that it had to. Now, Chinese leaders right now are extremely arrogant. We know this from that lecture by Professor Di Dongsheng, of Renmin University at the end of November, um, where they're just chortling about how they can um, manipulate the US political system to get the outcomes that they want. Um, so sending over somebody like Iger is going to, uh, I think, reinforce a very bad attitude in Beijing. I think that we either should send no ambassador or send, for instance, a human rights advocate to tell China, look, we're not scared of you. Gordon, what are some of the other major companies and, and just areas of industry? I, mean, I think when people understand the, the influence, the, the corporate influence that China has on us, on our corporations, uh, that really starts to hit home. We've seen some of this with NBA players, for example. I think that in the pop culture, that really made a, a big mark in people's minds. Hold on a second. NBA players won't speak out against China? What's that all about? Where else do we see this? Where are the troubling signs of the infiltration of American, major American corporations by the CCP? Well, it's even worse than that, Buck, because it's NBA players not speaking out against racism. Remember, um, uh, with this whole issue of uh, the NBA in China, um, you know, started over Hong Kong. 
But uh, a number of those NBA players have shoe contracts with a company called Nike. And remember, Nike um, had many of its shoes made in a facility that resembles a concentration camp and that the inmates were actually uh, minorities who had no choice but to work there. But, it, you know, it, to answer your question, you know, we're talking about almost every industry. So, for instance, tech, um, Google, um, for instance, um, they all want to be in China, Facebook. Um, and so, therefore, even though they're not permitted now, um, they do, I think, tread very lightly when it comes to Beijing. You know, you, you take, for instance, the big farm, um, big farm companies, um, you know, they want to sell to China. Um, the companies that make tractors, they want to sell to China. This is, uh, this is just across the board. There is almost no industry that doesn't want to be in China in a big way. And we've also seen in uh, Hollywood and, and in the media, there's a tremendous influence, Gordon. They removed the Taiwanese flag from the back of Tom Cruise in a remake of, of the classic Top Gun. Great flick, great movie. I didn't see the remake. But they're making those kinds of, of gestures. Uh, how pervasive is it now, you think, in, in our cultural institutions that they just will skirt around criticism or even just, just, just giving any kind of offense to sensibilities, not of just the Chinese people, but more specifically of the ruling class in China? Yeah, well, we've certainly seen that with Disney since we're talking about Bob Iger. Um, you know, for instance, they did that film um, uh, which had uh, in the original book a Tibetan spiritual figure who became a Celtic um, in the movie because they felt that if any mention of Tibet would be harmful to their prospects at Disney. And, of course, you had Mulan, uh, the, the uh, film about the Chinese warrior. That was actually made in what the Chinese call Xinjiang. And there was a thank you in the credits to a public security bureau that runs a concentration camp-like facility. I mean, have you seen Richard Gere in a bleeding role in a long time? Well, no, because he's a Tibetan activist. And so it just goes down this uh, scene. There have been so many movies where at the end, for some reason, the Chinese come in and save the planet. So um, that's another indication of really what is a thorough penetration of Hollywood. And it's not like the Chinese um, intimidate them. People there are intimidated by themselves. They're just so worried about what China may think that they self-censor and they accept scripts and, and do movies which have no offense to China. We know that we've heard a lot recently about a couple of high-profile individuals in the U.S. that have been the subject of at least some overture of influence operation from China. Uh, Eric Swalwell, now an, a member of the Intelligence Committee in the House of Representatives, and also uh, Joe Biden's son, um, Hunter. What do you make of those kinds of operations? Because we, we focus in on these two, and those are high-profile individuals. But what do you think of, of those two? Tell me that in those cases. But also, is this, is this a widespread and systematic program of trying to insert agents of influence or, or even groom agents of influence all across the U.S. power and industrial complex? Well, we've certainly seen China try to groom American politicians. So, for instance, that suspected Ministry of State Security agent, Christine Fong, first contacted Swalwell, not while he was sitting on the House Intel Committee, which, of course, would be of great interest to China, but when he was a council member in Dublin City, California. 
which suggests that China has um, been grooming people all across the U.S., which means there must be hundreds, if not thousands, of Ministry of State security agents in the U.S. And by the way, there are actually hundreds of thousands of collectors uh, of information for China at any one time, because China has this thousand grains of sand approach. They interview returning business people, students, tourists, to get little bits of information, which they then collate. So this has been going on for decades, Buck, and the fact that they tried to shovel money into the son of a sitting vice president, that'd be Hunter Biden, should be no surprise. And Gordon, just give uh, the folks watching this some sense of, you know, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese security apparatus is known for a- an unprecedented degree, especially when you add the scale of it, of not just censorship, but also monitoring and surveillance. Are the Chinese, are the Chinese security agencies paying attention to what's going on over here too? I mean, TikTok obviously got in the center of this conversation back in September. Is that a real concern that Chinese are monitoring people here? Oh, absolutely. They, they certainly are doing that. Um, and they've got a much bigger operation than the Russians do. You know, the TikTok algorithm probably has been um, modified in order to get people in America to do what Beijing wants. Um, and that's what a number of national security experts are concerned about. Got to remember one thing, that um, the reason why, I think, the reason why the State Department closed the Houston consulate in July instead of any of the other four consulates is because Radio Free Asia reported that an intelligence unit of the People's Liberation Army actually based themselves in the Houston consulate. And from there, they used big data and artificial intelligence to identify Americans likely to participate in the Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests. And then the PLA, the Chinese military, sent those Americans videos on how to riot. And they did that through TikTok. So um, clearly, China's been trying to do this. And I, I think that you know we can discuss TikTok forever but clearly Beijing does not want to give up control of that app because it is using it to influence American public opinion. Gordon, we have to have you back whenever this intelligence report on possible Chinese efforts to influence the 2020 election actually comes out. There may be an executive summary that's declassified at some point in the near future. In the meantime, Gordon, thank you for your expertise. We always appreciate seeing you. Thanks, Buck. We'll have more on China's efforts to infiltrate America's political institutions with the Heritage Foundation's Dean Cheng when we come back. China's expanding its strategic presence around the globe, its economy is rising faster than most, and its military is going through a period of rapid modernization. Sadly, it seems, despite all of this, our defense and diplomatic elites are clueless, or at least uh, weren't expecting China's rise. They've been ignoring the threat of this and the Chinese espionage and sabotage that's been going on for decades now. As they continue to infiltrate our institutions, we bury our heads in the sand. As they develop methods to steal our technology and intellectual property, we're too busy squabbling. Our politicians never miss a chance to cede more strategic ground to them. When will we finally push back and get our act together as a nation? To discuss this further, let's bring in Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Dean Chang. Dean, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. 
Tell us this first. Uh, how much has China closed the gap with the U.S. in a in, when it comes to technology, military, and intelligence capabilities in the last, let's say, ten to fifteen years? Well, the raw numbers themselves are pretty worrisome, and they don't tell the whole story. China now has the world's largest navy, and once upon a time, well, yeah, but they were little torpedo boats and things. No, now China has surface combatants that look like Arleigh Burks. They have nuclear submarines that uh, are very quiet. Um, they have the world's largest air force, and that includes not one, but two stealth fighter designs. Um, the Chinese just uh, brought back the first lunar samples uh, in over 40 years. And interestingly, that happens the same week that the Arecibo radio telescope, one of the world's largest that uh, is in Puerto Rico, collapsed. Uh, let me emphasize, the Chinese had nothing to do with that. Uh, it had been hit by hurricanes, cables had snapped, the thing is a giant, it's inside a crater, but it's sim the symbolism is not lost on the world. China's going back to the moon is the United States. Um, and then in things like artificial intelligence and quantum computing, frankly, it's not clear that we're ahead. In fact, in some of these key technology areas, we may be behind. Now, the U.S. has finally, it seems, woken up to the very long-standing cyber espionage effort. This has been in recent years. I wouldn't say this is all of a sudden, although it's getting more attention right now in the, in the media in general. Uh, can you give us a, a sense of just how widespread and, and how much of an impact that will likely have on some of these things you're talking about here, artificial intelligence, 5G, military designs? Do we have any ability to, to even try to ballpark how much has been stolen and what it will mean for us? So people have tried to put some economic numbers on this. You sometimes hear a trillion dollars worth of intellectual property has been stolen. The problem is that it's, it is very hard to quantify, right? Uh, part of this is that there have been cases where an, a Western company did all the research and just as it's about to file a patent, a Chinese company swoops in and files that patent. So now the people who did the R&D are going to have to pay to use it. Um, and that didn't happen simply because the Chinese were lucky. It happened because some of this was stolen. Uh, a quick it, parallel. It turns out that in World War II, we read all the German codes throughout much of the war. It's why we won the Battle of the Atlantic. It's why we could win uh, Overlord, you know, D-Day. Now, China is building the very communications infrastructure. Germany just said that, hey, we're, we're okay with China building our 5G network. Think about how much information flows over that physical infrastructure that the Chinese now potentially have access to. It's amazing and it's mind blowing and it's pretty frightening actually. And on that, I'll ask you to tell me about Chinese defense spending. We have a chart here from the, uh, the China, uh, this, uh, from CSIS, the China Power Project there. You see, I mean, Ch China is spending more and more every year, and, and the actual expenditures, we believe, are, are billions of dollars more than even what they're officially saying. What does China consider its primary, uh, its primary military objectives now? Well, who, who and what does it view as the threats it's preparing for? One of the funny things is that, you know, we often say China is not transparent, and to be fair, that's usually true. But on this issue, the Chinese have actually been very open. They have laid out what are our military objectives according to them. First and foremost, keep the Chinese Communist Party in power. 
Second of all, be prepared to take Taiwan, especially if Taiwan ever declares independence. And third, quote unquote, preserve China's interests in the maritime outer space and cyber domains. That the Chinese are very upfront in saying, this is what we're going to do. We are going to basically try to control the seas, outer space, and the electromagnetic spectrum, which includes cyber. They're preparing to take Taiwan if they have to. They think that they can seduce Taiwan or pressure Taiwan. But if not, that's where they're going. And that is their first priority. And they have never tried to hide that in the last 40 years. You mentioned Taiwan. What should we take from the Chinese effort to suppress some of the freedoms established in an agreement with, with Hong Kong over the past year? And where do you think that's going? Well, the Chinese signed a formal alliance, uh, not a formal treaty with the UK on the handover that said, we will leave Hong Kong alone for 50 years. And now they are, Jimmy Lai, uh, a uh, publisher of one of the last free newspapers in Hong Kong, has now just been arrested uh, or detained by the Chinese and apparently maybe even extradited to China. So the Chinese commitment to upholding their end of the bargain is is kind of open to question. One country, two systems, which was sort of the test case uh, in Hong Kong has pretty clearly failed. And Taiwan doesn't, not surprisingly, doesn't have much faith or confidence in China's promises. The problem is Taiwan also has very little diplomatic standing. We are pretty much the only people who are willing to sell arms to Taiwan. What do you see Dean, as going forward, let's say that the next four years of, of a new administration, what are the what are the primary flashpoints? What do we have to be on the lookout for as something that could actually get a whole lot worse and spiral into something bigger than we even anticipated when it comes to some of these areas of friction with the Chinese Communist Party? So China and India two nuclear armed powers have an uncertain border between them. And for the longest time, it was just people glaring at each other. But in the last couple of years, it's escalated. And now there have been multiple deaths up there. So we have two nuclear armed countries where there have been casualties, um, actually by like rock falls and people being thrown off of cliffs. Um, because both sides are trying not to sh literally shoot at each other. Uh, Taiwan has been mentioned. Um, but let me just throw out one really worrisome observation. During the campaign debates, the only thing that ever got brought up as a threat by Joe Biden was climate change. When he was vice president, Barack Obama wanted China to go to COP21, and we stopped doing patrols in the South China Sea at the same time. That's when China built those artificial islands in the South China Sea. If Joe Biden is serious about saying, the biggest threat facing America is climate change, not China. What might he be willing to trade? Very good question. Dean, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for your expertise. Thanks for having me. We spent a lot of time discussing China's efforts to undermine the United States, but what are its vulnerabilities? More importantly, how do we exploit them? More on that with senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, Wei Fang Zong, after the break. 